It's Thursday, December 27th. Welcome to Market Fuller. I'm Chris Hale, joining me in studio. We both survived Christmas. Jason Moser. <laughs> I should say all three of us all survived three Christmas because yeah. Dan Boyd, our man behind the glass, also survived. Good to see you. Good to see you. Alive Boy, and kicking. It's been, it's been bananas, hasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, we're we're gonna we're gonna talk about. There is actually some business news out there. There's an acquisition we're gonna talk about. Actually, two acquisitions we're gonna talk about. But let's. We should start with just what's been happening with the market. Christmas Eve. And then on the twenty sixth, and it's it's just been crazy. Even for us, I think. I mean, I don't know about you, but I sort of got this sense when we were chatting before we started taping that we're in the studio. We're we've been watching the market. This is our job. Yeah. But I think even for you and me, we were looking what was happening on Christmas Eve, going, "Holy cow!" Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was like you know, it's really weird. Like I. Part of me, I've said this before. I walked out of the financial crisis stretch of time there, you know, two thousand eight, two thousand nine. The Hank Paulson years were really all it took was one thirty-minute-long speech from him live on on the news to to send the markets one way or the other five, six, seven hundred points, and we became very used to those types of moves. And and so these are. Definitely a lot easier to stomach, but you still step back and you're wondering, like, what in the world is going on? Um, and I think the headlines would have you believe that a lot of this is just based on interest rate policy. I mean, I think it was something to the extent that uh, the Fed Chair Jerome Powell said that you know they're they're probably going to raise rates twice in 2019, but maybe his Attitude, the way he said it, really wasn't how how people that didn't instill confidence in people. And so, I mean, you have to start looking at some of this stuff and saying, you know what, that's a bit you're reading a bit too much into this. Uh, now, with that said, I mean, the reality is that these are the types of things that are going to move these markets on a day to day basis. I mean, we can sit there and say it's absurd, but it's not going to change the fact that these markets are going haywire. So you have a few things to keep in mind. I mean, number one. We're at a point here towards the end of the year where there's going to be some cleaning house, so to speak, and setting up shops for the beginning of 2019 and making those those holdings look better from an institutional perspective. But I mean, I would also say, I mean, like all of this headline stuff aside, it doesn't change the fundamentals of a lot of these really good businesses out there. So. They're the same good businesses they were at the beginning of the year as they are at the end of this year, and and they have long track records of success. And my point is that I think these are the times the volatility is really when the opportunities present themselves. So you make sure that you have your ducks in a row and you're ready to pull that trigger. And and the other thing I would just encourage people to do is to take it slow. You don't need to put all your cash to work at once. The one thing the financial crisis taught me back then was that. Take it slow. If you think it can't go lower, trust me, it can definitely go lower. And the fact of the matter is, we're going to have this administration for at least the next two years. And I think a lot of this is tied to just the unpredictable nature of what they're going to say next. And love it or hate it, that's just going to be the reality of the situation. Couple things. First of all, for those who are new to investing in the stock market or new to paying attention to the Federal Reserve, what Jerome Powell did. Just sort of that guidance. That's that's not unusual. No, past Fed chairs have done that. Future Fed chairs will do that. So that, in and of itself, is not unusual. As you said, you know, when you have 
one of the dominant storylines of the past week in terms of Wall Street and the Fed, one of the dominant storylines being people figuring out if the president is allowed to fire the chairman of the federal <laughs> like people looking into and our next guest is a lawyer who's going to interpret you know that that's new i don't think yeah. we've seen that before but it, to your point and you were sort of touching on emotion and not getting caught up it's worth reminding ourselves that part of keeping your emotions in check is recognizing that other people are not going to keep their emotions in check. Sure. And when there was this question, when the president was tweeting about Jerome Powell and it was sending signals of, hey, that, you know, Powell needs to go, and then it leads to, and by the way, having the, the Treasury Secretary call the, <laughs> the CEOs of the banks out of the blue. And then tweet about that and say, you know. Listen, man. I mean, the picture that runs—that's not helping. No, not at all. And the picture that runs through my mind immediately when I saw that tweet, because we always talk about the the difference between Main Street and Wall Street, and what's going on on Wall Street isn't necessarily what Main Street is feeling. And I see that tweet go out, and I'm thinking, man, the the just normal everyday Main Street kind of guy or gal, they see that tweet and they're thinking, liquidity. Yeah. What the hell is he talking about? Just, I mean, he just right yeah. over there. Like, what does that mean? Why the, does it matter? For those to me? who missed that, Secretary Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, tweeting about and, and then issuing a statement about how uh, he was in Mexico on vacation right before Christmas, and uh, probably at the urging of the president, called the CEOs of the six largest banks in America, and then decided to share with the world, hey, everybody, I, I talked to the banks, and I assured them that we're good in terms of liquidity. And then, you on Twitter, you immediately had all these other people <laughs> tweeting sort of, you know, Analogies to that, you know, it's like you're on a plane and the pilot comes on. Just want to, you know, let everybody know we got a full tank of, of jet fuel, yeah, and all of the engines are working great, so we're fine. <laughs> if you thought everything was problematic, no, everything's fine. Feel free to walk about the cabin. I mean, were you? Did, did you have liquidity concerns, Chris? Not until that. Not until that. I didn't either. And I mean, I really do believe that even after that call, like I look at that and I think, I still don't have concerns in regard to liquidity. I think that you know there is just that's a, that's a tremendous disconnect. You you're not speaking to the general public when you say stuff like that. You're speaking to people like us who are going to sit here and talk about it on this show and try to explain to the general public that frankly you shouldn't be worried about that. Uh, I mean there was a obviously liquidity crisis during the great recession. The ways that they addressed that and dealt with it Obviously, we're paying a little bit of the price today and trying to unwind all that mess. But to get out there and just say it based on some of the market tumult, I think was very, it was just amateurish, to be quite honest with you. I just don't think it was very, I don't think it was very professional. I think, I don't think he quite thought it through. And I think, uh, you know, again, I go back to, you know, we've got at least two more years of this administration, whether you love them or hate them. I mean, this, I'm not getting political here. I'm just saying this is the type of stuff you have to expect. I mean, it's going to be a little bit unpredictable. But you know what? That's okay. I actually, I'm, I'm going to embrace that unpredictability. I'm going to make sure that I keep some, some cash on the sidelines ready to invest because I think we're going to continue to see these types of opportunities going into 2019, going into 2020. And, uh, you know, these, these times, that volatility, as we've said before, is what helps you separate yourself uh, and really outperform over longer periods of time. It just it does take some 
courage, uh, which is it's a lot easier said than done. Let's get to the acquisitions, and you had pointed out this first one uh, that. Uh, Clearly, I was caught up in the headlines of <laughs> whether or not it's okay to fire the chairman of the Federal Reserve and tweets about liquidity. Uh, Ameris Bancorp uh, made an acquisition. Mm-hmm. What's the deal here? Yeah, so long-time listeners will know Ameris. I mean, I've talked about it before. It is one that I think flies under the radar for a lot of folks because it's just a small cap southeast, you know, regional bank. Um, and it's one I, I started digging into back during the financial crisis when everything was 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 going to the hell in a handbasket, so to speak. And, and Ameris uh, has always been a very well-run bank. It was much smaller back then, but the FDIC saw it fit to. Uh, use Ameris as as a partner in rolling up a lot of those failed institutions, and so Ameris has been able to grow over the years uh, in, in in deliver for shareholders, and so it it became ultimately about a two billion dollar market capitalization uh, bank, and recently uh, the stock has pulled back a little bit, but this is your quintessential deal, I think, where the market is just placing the burden of proof on the acquirer. And that's the right perspective, I think. I mean, they announced this deal; they're going to buy Fidelity uh, Bank, which is an Atlanta uh, bank. Uh, they're going to roll this this bank into their family. It's about a seven hundred and fifty million dollar acquisition, so it's a big one for Ameris uh, in, in the context of their company. But I think that there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic about it. Um, you know, I, I like banks. A lot. I compare them to insurers in that they're basically in the business of investing. Like insurers, uh, well-run insurers are able to take that float that they get from the premiums, and and they are able to invest that money and help grow the business and diversify and get bigger. And banks are very much the same way. They're just investing that deposit base. Uh, so this deal is going to give Ameris a uh, you know much bigger deposit base in a deposit base that actually the deposit base they're bringing in from Fidelity it's it's a lower cost deposit base about 25% lower cost of deposits which is good that gives them the opportunity to make more money on that deposit base but i think also it really gives them terrific exposure to the Atlanta market which is just booming and having been down there since uh, you know 2000 uh, it, it, I've seen the development, and I continue to go back, and it's amazing how big that place is getting in the sprawl. Uh, so this is going to give Ameris uh, total assets of 16 billion plus, total deposits of 13 billion plus. They have a consistent history of being able to bring uh, 1% or better return on assets, and while acquisitions are always very risky, and, and that's a big risk here too, I'm not dis- discounting it. Number one, they have a good track record based on what they've done over the past several years uh, with the FDIC and, and bringing all of these institutions. And they've made a few other acquisitions last year. Um, but also, these are two cultures that are very similar. They've known each other for a long time. Executive teams have have worked together before. So I think there are a lot of similarities, and, and, and it seems that both teams are very excited to be to become part of each other's family. You look at the stock, which has almost been cut in half in the last yeah. six months. And I'm wondering if you look at this stock and say, for someone who doesn't own shares, this is a buying opportunity, or because of this acquisition, because of the size of this acquisition, do you wait and see how it plays out maybe three months from now, that sort of thing? I think that if this happens 
four years ago, five years ago, with a little bit less experience at the helm and a little bit less uh, of a track record to go on, track record to go on, you probably are a little bit more hesitant. I think today the risk reward is such this is absolutely a buying opportunity. I think this is a proven management team. Uh, in a business that that isn't going away, they've done a very good job of managing this business in a conservative fashion, uh, and all of all of the metrics continue to to confirm that. I mean, they they remain well capitalized, and 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 they don't do anything stupid. They have a very nice diverse lending book, and and uh, frankly, I mean, I I own shares personally. I, I, I just have a lot of, of uh, optimism as to where this bank is going to go over the coming decade. And I think that's how investors need to look at this. I mean, this is today, it looks a little bit sketchy. You know, you look a little bit risky, maybe. But I think if you look at this as a two year, five year, 10 year holding, they're going to digest this acquisition, so to speak, and I think become a much bigger uh, and healthier bank that's going to be able to deliver more for shareholders over time. As you said, Ameris Bank Corp concentrated in the southeast mm -hmm. part of the United States. Would you say it is the Bojangles of banking? <laughs> you know what? I'm sure they don't make biscuits that come quite close to uh, what the Jangler is able to deliver. Uh, where where Bojangles, I think, has had a little bit of trouble extending their book beyond the southeastern corridor of the United States, I think that Ameris is is a bit stronger in that regard, and I suspect we'll continue to see them slowly but surely spread beyond just the southeast. I, I would not go so far as to call them the jangler of, of the banking industry. <laughs> the stock of the day is Earthport. Which is a British payments company. Uh, shares of Earthport are up 280% today, and that is because this small payments company has just been acquired by Visa. Good for Earthport, good for any shareholders who are listening, because they're having a heck of a day. This seems like yet another. Smart deployment of capital on the part of Visa and the war on cash. Yeah, I mean, if you've never heard of Earthport, well, join the club because <laughs> I can't say I knew a whole heck of a lot about it either um, until this until this deal was announced today. Although I will say it's interesting this this initial offer was made back in November, um, and while the deal was announced today, there was another. Uh, competitor in the space that made an offer as well, sort of a counter offer. So Visa had to up their their ante a little bit, so to speak, um, in, in order to get it. And, and I mean, you look at the numbers. I mean, two hundred fifty million dollars, whatever. This is a drop in the bucket deal for Visa. There's uh, far more upside than downside for them when you think about it from a global perspective. Um, and and uh, I mean, that's what this is. It is it is a it is a play on cross border transactions, spreading. Uh, that footprint, so to speak, and getting a bigger uh, global presence. Um, you know, I think when you look at this space, I mean, this is really exemplary of what the biggest advantage or advantages in the space are in in really the scale that Visa possesses and the network effects that come from being a part of that that big network. Um, it, it's interesting to me from the EU perspective, from the European perspective. Companies like Earthport are going to have a very difficult time, I think, succeeding because 
the EU, it's a fairly highly regulated environment when it comes to interchange. And it sounds like when it comes to cross border transactions, uh, the European Commission is actually testing additional regulations or caps on that interchange for cross border transactions. Which I mean, it's it's not really much that would affect Visa any which way. I mean, they're they're passing along the cost in regard to the business that Earthport's focusing on. But it makes it makes for a much more difficult environment for companies like Earthport to succeed. There's not much they can do, right? They can't raise prices. They can't really do anything to exercise any kind of pricing power. So so growing and competing in the space is really difficult. So then the light at the end of the tunnel is. Well, you get acquired by a much bigger network like Visa that immediately uh, increases your network by many factors, and and so I think you know it's it's probably the best case scenario for Earthport and for Visa. Like I said, it's it's not really a big deal either way, but it is just another incremental step in building out that network, becoming a bigger global network, um, and really flexing the scale that they've achieved. To date, so you know, I mean, it's not going to be one on its own that makes a big difference to their performance, but it's another piece of the puzzle, so to speak. I have to believe there are investors who are looking at this move and immediately searching around for okay, what are other small yeah. public like who are Earthport's direct competitors because. Hopefully, I can pick up a few shares. They get bought up because that that really does seem to be. The move. I think that's probably a fair assumption is to look in the European space and and you know I spoke with Rory Karen the other other week with Rubicoin out there in Ireland and we were talking a little bit about some of these smaller payments companies over there in in uh, in, in their part of the world and, and I think you I mean I get I get people on Twitter all the time who ping me about some of these smaller companies too I think I think there is a good chance we're going to see a lot more consolidation in the future with these European companies because again it's going to be a little bit more of a difficult environment for them to grow and succeed and so the light at the end of the tunnel is hey maybe we can become a part of something bigger and and Visa and Mastercard are the most obvious suspects but don't discount companies like PayPal you know they recently bought iZettle and that was a European play uh, you're seeing Square certainly try to grow their presence there and beyond. Um, I mean, American Express, Discover. I mean, there's so many companies out there that do such a good job, and I think they're looking at this global opportunity um, and, and really uh, thinking long and hard about the opportunities that exist. Well, in the same way that we talk about startup beverage companies, yeah, and for them, example. the business plan is at some point, hopefully, we get acquired by Coke or Pepsi, or you know, or if you know, in the spirits case, you know, maybe Diageo buys us, or you know, Constellation Brands, that sort of thing. Um, the difference there is that if you're a small craft brew, you know, based in Richmond, Virginia, or Raleigh, North Carolina, you know, whatever, you can just go about your business. You know, <laughs> like like you, you're not worried about being quashed by. Budweiser. Whereas with Earthport, to your you know to your point, at some point someone in the room had to say, "Hey, look, if we don't take this offer, <laughs> and we don't get another one, then you know this may be a binary outcome situation for us. Take this offer, or in two years we're out of business." That's that's I think a very good comparison there. There's a lot more loyalty I think to a, a good craft brew than there is to that. Uh, you know, little European payment processor <laughs> that you can't remember the name of. <laughs> right. Um, this week on a monthly full money, we've got our 2018 year in review, and then we are uh, 
back at it Monday with Market Foolery and Industry Focus, uh, which Jason hosts. Uh, obviously, the market is closed on Tuesday, and then uh, back to business on Wednesday. Back to business. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you on Monday.